one one thing that I want to do, you know, on this podcast is uh, encourage, first of all, um, people to take the issue of education seriously. I think that God commands it of us, but then also know that no matter what you, where you end up on that, um, you know, spectrum or in that decision-making process, it will take faith. This is the Defiant Dad Podcast, show number six, coming to you today from the great state of Texas. My name is Andrew Sullivan. Thank you so much for making this show part of your day. Defiant is defined in the dictionary as showing a disposition to challenge, resist, or fight. In this podcast, it equips fathers to fight for themselves and for their families using the truth of the gospel. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine and a longtime teaching elder of my church. It's a guy by the name of Chris Taylor. In addition to his role as elder and teacher, he is a husband, a father of three, and he serves on the board of directors for Covenant Classical School here in Fort Worth. Chris is one of the most intelligent and thoughtful people that I know, particularly when it comes to the idea of how to educate your kids. I know this can be a sensitive subject for a lot of folks, but I can't think of many folks better equipped, honestly, to handle a sensitive subject. He really has a great way with words and with handling issues like this with grace, and I think you're going to get a lot out of what he has to say today. That said, before we get going, can I quickly ask you a favor? Could you please take 15 seconds of your time today, share this podcast with someone you know who might appreciate it. It would mean so, so much to me and to my guests as well, who uh, graciously give their time and their knowledge for all of us to benefit. Uh, Chris Taylor, again, he's our guest today. He has so much wisdom to share, so... Let's dive right in. There we go. That's that's maybe a little bit better. Yeah. Okay. okay. Chris Taylor, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. I to, really appreciate being asked. To the uh, the office studio here today. Um, said this to a number of my guests already before, but when I was thinking about the concept for this podcast, I knew for sure I'd have you on. Oh man, I'm humbled. Um, so it means it means so much um, that you're here. Yeah. So thank thank you. you for taking time out of your day here in uh, early July. I guess let's get started. Um, I want to know more about you. I mean, I've known you for years, but I feel like I don't know a whole lot about you. Um, yeah, I want to know keep it real hidden. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what sort of shady past do you come from? No, I want to know. You know, where you grew up, how you came to know the Lord. Um, I, you know, we're going to talk today about education, so I want to know also what brought about your interest in that. Yeah, you yeah. bet. I appreciate that. Um, well, uh, I was born right here in Fort Worth, and so I am from Texas. Uh, a lot of people, though, say your accent's not that uh, thick, and that's because about five years old, um, my family went overseas, and so my mom worked for one of the local defense contractors, and we ended up in Taiwan for uh, about four or five years, mm-hmm. and so I actually grew up uh, they are going to a uh, small Christian boarding school named Morrison Academy wow. in uh, Taichung, Taiwan. And so, so you lived at the school? Uh, I didn't. I was one of the uh, kids that because we lived there, um, you know, we could we could live with our families, go in. But oh, okay. it was a boarding school because there were. Um, uh, decades and decades ago, a lot of Christian families that um, were missionaries in China, mm-hmm. and uh, they would bring their kids to um, yeah to Taiwan to board them, so that uh, they were maybe shielded from a little bit of the geopolitical danger of uh, living in a uh, country that was hostile to Christianity. So wow. there was a boarding component to it, but uh, I lived with my family and went to the school. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. 
So anyway, uh, grew up there, came back to the United States, uh, went to Alito, uh, and uh, Alito's just outside of Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, feel really blessed to have uh, been at that school at the time, you know, that I was. Um, I grew up in a Christian family, and uh, um, I don't want to make uh, too little or too much of that. It was an enormous grace of God to, um, to give me a family where uh, Jesus was right at the center of things. Um, but uh, I will also say that uh, we weren't uh, a family that did a lot of uh, Bible study together. It wasn't something that was, uh, um, you know, discipleship in our home was I had two really wonderful Christian parents that uh, put me in the right places and, uh, you know, took me to church, uh, you know, um, and, uh, and took care of me uh, more so than it was like an overtly uh, discipleship, heavy handed, uh, you know, kind of home. And so uh, grew up there always just just kind of with a knowledge of uh, the gospel as early as I can remember. Wow. Uh, I was uh, baptized around uh, 12 years old, and I just remember a lot of the questions that I was uh, asking at the time, um, you know, finding their answer in uh, in my family's faith and, mm. um, you know, coming to know Jesus as a part of that. I, I will say that um, I do believe that, you know, I was rightly baptized at that time, but I didn't really start growing in my faith uh, until later on in high school. Yeah. Um, my parents uh, coerced me to come uh, to a local Bible uh, church. I, I started playing in a small praise band at another church that uh, they wished that I wasn't quite as involved with. And so they <laughs> uh, uh, they bartered with me and, um, and and said that they would send me on a, a free ski trip with the uh, with the Bible church. And okay. I'm so glad that they did because it, uh, it was uh, one of the God's great graces in my, in my life because uh, going to that church was very formative uh, theologically. It was a very helpful healthy place for me to be at that age and uh, and started following Jesus, um, uh, you know, somewhat fervently uh, from about, you know, sophomore, uh, you know, summer onward. Wow. Yeah. Would you say that um, your dad had a pretty big impact on your faith? Yeah. I mean, my dad, um, uh, Steve Taylor, um, he uh, grew up in, um, uh, in the faith, uh, grew up in a Christian family. Like so many uh, young men when he was younger had a, a dad that had uh, returned home from war, uh, had seen the Great Depression, uh, maybe not was uh, emotionally what we think of as, you know, a very open man, but was a good man. Yeah. And uh, my dad ended up, um, you know, having a, a couple of very serious car wrecks and um, sometime around his uh, freshman, sophomore year of college, uh, came into the faith in a pretty mighty way, ended up transferring um, uh, to a Christian college and then ultimately out to Fort Worth, uh, where he went to uh, Southwestern Theological Seminary. And so that's uh, um, that's kind of his uh, path towards faith and then ended up spending most of his career as a licensed uh, counselor, um, you know, using his theological and and, uh, uh, you know, Christian education in counseling to uh, do some counseling work, especially with geriatric patients. So wow. uh, he was very formative watching my dad uh, love and care for other people, be involved in church, be a man who was respected in the churches that we were a part of was extremely formative. Wow. So connect the dots for me. So I think if I think back to when I probably first met you, it must have been somewhere around 2011, 2012-ish, when you were at the Rooted Church. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Um, and I think you were probably married to your wife then. Yep. Um, I don't know when you guys get married, but I remember I was asked uh, to fill in 
as a guest worship leader for that church one day, uh-huh. and I probably met you that day. Yeah. Um, and then later on down the road, the Rooted Church moved with City Church, where I'm yeah. at, where we're at, and um, you became one of the elders, yeah. you know, at City Church. And so connect the dots with me from high school yep. when your faith was growing to, to, I guess, how you became an elder. Yeah, you bet. Well, that was an interesting journey that would take a long time. But in short, uh, my wife, Sawyer, and I, we met in uh, high school, uh, uh, fell in love, uh, you know, but we were very young. We dated for three and a half years, uh, you know, through college and Mm. ultimately decided to get married before either one of us had uh, the diploma in hand. And so we we got married with the purpose of starting a family and uh, wanted to do that. We didn't have kind of the typical college experience we were aimed at life after college more than anything else. And uh, during that time, had some ebbs and flows in my own faith. And, uh, you know, my wife is uh, amazing. Uh, woman of the uh, uh, word and uh, yeah. loves Jesus uh, mightily. Uh, we ultimately decided to get married, and we were at uh, an amazing church. And um, God really, we felt, uh, called us out of this amazing church where we had really great relationships uh, for the purpose of seeing another uh, gospel-oriented, uh, biblical church uh, planted in Fort Worth. And so ultimately, uh, we had uh, gone to uh, a a fellow ministry leader named Nick Osterman at the time and said, hey, this is going to be our last semester in student ministries at this church. Uh, Asked me why and said, well, we're feeling called and drawn to a church plant. And and he said, no kidding. Um, You know, and at that time, we had no idea that God was calling him to plant a church. And so we threw uh, several months of prayer, decided to um, move out and help plant a a church here in Fort Worth named the Rooted Church. Um, In the first meeting that we ever had with Nick and Tessa, his wife, uh, Sawyer and I were sitting there, and uh, Tessa said, we can plant this church, and and you could be one of the elders there. And I said, "Uh, no, I'm not interested in that. I I don't think I'll ever be an elder, uh, I think were my precise words. And um, ultimately, when we planted the church, there was a need for leadership. I took a look at, you know, passages like 1 Timothy 3 and uh, the passages out of 2 Peter and just said, okay, well, I feel biblically qualified. I want to see people come into the faith. I want mm-hmm. to see, um, you know, sheep shepherded. And so... Uh, you qualified a, and you wanted to do the work. Yeah, I, it, yeah. It, it, it really was. And it, it, God used that... Um, uh, as a step of faith into a process that I just trusted to uh, discern whether or not I should uh, should step into the role of a uh, pastor elder. And ultimately uh, went through that process. It took about a year and a half or so for me to get through the uh, reading and the assessments and everything else. Uh, but really the, um, the true equipping has come with the last nearly decade and a half of uh, pastoral ministry. And um, wow. it's been extremely humbling because I've learned a lot at, um, honestly, through a lot of failure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, as I think, I'm, I'm thankful for our relationship, you know, especially the last few years with, with City Church and me being on staff there. Like, I, I've i become way more acquainted through you with the burdens that you carry as an elder, you know, and the good and bad. Like, I mean, burden, yeah. like, mean, like, the weight, you know, the weight of responsibility that's on your shoulders um, and on Jeff's shoulders, you know, and on Andrew's shoulders. And, uh, I, I, I don't know, <laughs> like as, as I read through the same passages in first Timothy, like I, I, I feel qualified in a lot of ways, but I'm also like, do I want that work? You know, cause it's mm-hmm. a lot, 
It's, yeah. it's so much more, you know, than it seems at first blush. And at first blush, it seems like a lot, but it's even yeah. more, you know. So uh, it's been it's been great just getting to know you in that context um, and as well as a friend. Um, moving on into our into our discussion now uh, about education, you know, kind of a sensitive subject. But I think you're really well qualified to speak uh, into this, you know, both uh, from a biblical worldview and both with your life experience. Um, as, as I look out. Actually, you said this thing when you were at lunch uh, just a little bit ago. You mentioned um, kind of the cultural norm of so many uh, Westerners, or maybe just it's just an American thing, I don't know. Um, so many parents say, I just want my kids to be happy. You know, I'm just gonna, you know, the, you, the word you used that I thought was so great was laissez-faire, you yeah. know. Um, where do you think, do you agree with that versus I think you do? I mean, do, do you, where does that laissez-faire attitude come from? Yeah, you know, that's like, a good where, where, question. Where was that born? Well, has it always been that way? In your opinion, like, uh, no, I don't think it's always been that way. I think it's a, a pretty modern idea that uh, parents are um, have the utmost concern of their child's happiness. I think that that arrives from a certain kind, a particular kind of worldview that uh, I'm not going to say is altogether uh, bad or good. Um, I do want to take a step back, real quick. Just uh, you mentioned qualifications. The the interesting thing is is that I should be the person that is. Uh, least qualified to talk about education. I uh, remember when I was very young seeing my dad had this book called An Incomplete Education. And I don't remember anything from that book. I remember the premise of the book was that uh, modern education leaves out uh, quite a bit of studies in um, Western civilization and, you know, uh, uh, different types of uh, literature and these kinds of things. And so mm -hmm. it was essentially a quick books, uh, sorry, a, um, uh, a Cliff's Note version yes. of what you might have uh, missed in your education. I don't remember anything from that book, but I do remember feeling uh, very drawn to it because I, I was very curious. I uh, feel like uh, God gifted me with uh, more curiosity and intellectual, like, you know, desire than he gave me discipline and stamina, scholastically at least. I, I was a terrible student. Um, okay. Well, you, you know, say could, that, and that blows my mind. Like, I don't understand. Like, yeah, I, it's, it's just that my, uh, I didn't thrive in an educational, uh, you know, setting, especially okay. the way that it was arranged for me. I um, went to a really good, by all accounts, a good public school. Um, but just the, the things that make me tick didn't really make me um, disciplined to learn some of these things. So, I mean, I, I ended up in pre-AP and a few AP classes, but yeah. um, it, it was mostly Bs for me. So, I mean, I was making it through, but yeah. there was no, uh, I couldn't even see top 10% in the distance uh, <laughs> okay. in, my, in my class of uh, 230. And so, uh, and it didn't get any better when I went to college. I, I ultimately ended up in a few different colleges, but um, didn't thrive as a student. Um, but always a learner. Like mm. the one thing that maybe uh, got instilled in me, um, you know, through my family or through uh, maybe it was travel, just growing up overseas, is I, I even to this day have an insatiability to learn information, and yeah. wisdom, and things like that. And so um, that's carried me far longer because I think that there are a lot of people that um, intellectual stimulation is something that they find in college and then they quickly leave behind for a career where they're doing a lot of the same things over and over again. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, uh, for me, I was, uh, you know, kind of always working and, you know, working through school and, you um, 
anyway, just found a uh, desire to learn as much as I could. And I really have not, not stopped, uh, you know, ever and, and really hope not to. But um, so that makes it hysterical that actually in terms of qualification, uh, I continued reading, you know, after college, uh, took, um, you know, a great interest in education and ultimately was asked uh uh, to be on the board of our um, the school that my kids go to, Covenant Classical School, was asked to be on a board there because I think they perceived what you did, which is just a um, uh, a real desire to know more about education and yeah. kind of you know uh, stand for some of the principles that that school stands for. And uh, so it is a curiosity. It's something that I have done a lot of reading on, but it's not something that I would say my life uh, prior to about ten years ago really demonstrated. So, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm just caught you just the right time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I have a desire for people to receive a far better education than I did. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. You spoke to something there that um, I didn't write down in the questions beforehand, but I think this is a good spot to start. Um, how do you foster this desire of lifelong learning in your kids? You know, because that's when I think about who I want my son and my daughter to be, it, it's a lifelong learning because I find, at least in my very limited observance of the world, like I feel like I see the most successful folks in life are the lifelong learners. Yeah. You know, the ones whose curiosity never wanes. Yeah. You know, so how do you, do you, do you foster that in your own three kids? Yeah. I, I think that I certainly aspire to, I, I, I think that there are probably lots of ways that I, uh, fall, uh, you know, on that. But I, I would say that the, the most basic thing that you can do, and this is something that I've uh, tried to uh, do well, though not always, is when my kids ask a question, when they're curious about something, say, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. And then uh, not always immediately give them the answer, but give them the space and the tools to find some of that, uh, mm-hmm. those answers. And so, um, you know, even if it's something that I don't personally have an interest in, and our kids always bring stuff stuff to us that uh, is uh, maybe, um, you know, minute or, or something that doesn't really capture our own imaginations, but trying to see the opportunity of uh, just fostering within our kids a desire to ask the question, yeah. to know that it's good, and then to uh, help them in finding that answer out. And so, uh, you know, uh, that's one way that we've done it. The, the other, and this is something that I think most parents will um you know, will identify with is trying to take the question of education seriously. Mm. Uh, when do our kids start becoming educated? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, how do we go about that? What institutions do we partner with uh, to educate them? And so it's not merely a matter of what school they go to. Um, we're wanting to identify uh, gifts and, um, you know, the things that captivate our kids very early. Yeah. Uh, so I think that it starts by, you know, uh, teaching them to read reading to them a lot. Uh, this is uh, something that my uh, wife did is, um, is was always reading. And so when our kids brought us a book, even if it was for the 150th time, the answer was yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I will read that to you again. You've read Goodnight uh, Moon a few times. Uh, yeah, it's just a few. Um, <laughs> yeah. One time we had uh, probably an entire library of kids' books uh, uh, committed to memory. And so yeah. uh, taking that time, at, uh, for me, primarily at bedtime or uh, on the weekends, but for my wife, uh, you know, just literally thousands of uh, times reading uh, books. And so it cultivates, you know, the child's imagination. I think one of the ways, and this will be a little bit of a hot topic, and I don't want to be prescriptive here because there are lots of different situations where we've utilized technology as a tool and everything else, but 
something about a blinking flashing screen, um, I think actually disrupts a lot of, uh, not curiosity. You can find lots of information, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, the blinking and flashing screen often interrupts our children's ability to, um, uh, to really have to struggle to find that, yeah. uh, to learn how to read versus watching a video, mm -hmm. to, uh, look at stacked static pictures on a, uh, on a, uh, thing that they're holding in their hand that is made of paper versus, uh, something where uh, the next picture comes along in just a few seconds. Um, I think that there is something about patience, something about holding, you know, a real book in your hands, uh, especially for children, that doesn't stunt a, uh, a, a curiosity but expands a capacity for it. Yeah. So I, I would really encourage uh, parents to, you know, as much as you can, put away um, electronic devices, build a library um, yeah. of things that your kids find interesting. And, you yeah. know, uh, that's that's something that we I think have done. Uh, we have a little library in uh, in the space just outside of our kids' rooms, and it's mm. um, got the entire Hardy Boys series <laughs> and tons of Nancy Drew and uh, lots of uh, lots of other uh, books for kids that are um, the, that they're able to kind of work through. Yeah, and and providing that space and time for them to do that, I think, is really important. Your thought, your statement there, especially about the Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, that actually has me flashing back to when I was in like elementary and middle school, I'd see the commercials on TV for World Book. Yeah. You know, and I really wanted World Book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but like all 27 of them or, you know, it was like A to Z, but there's a few extra or double letter, you know, where uh, they're so expensive and they had the, they had the beautiful glossy pages with the color photos yeah. and stuff. And I can remember, I can I think the starting point of so many projects, you know, because internet for us like wasn't prolific, even even useful no. for yeah. us until early high school, you know, late junior high and like, or maybe a little earlier than that, but still like, I remember so many projects began with world book. Yeah. You know, well, the thing about world book and I don't have strong feelings about it, but I, I remember the same thing looking at encyclopedia Britannica and th there was something quantifiable about how much knowledge I didn't know. Yeah. When, when you, when you look at a device or a screen that can pull up far more information than an encyclopedia can, it's still kind of anonymous. There's no yeah. way to really quantify it. But if you walked into your library as a kid or your parents uh, somehow had enough money to uh, buy an entire set of Encyclopedia Britannica, you, you yeah. could look at it and go, there's a lot I don't know. Yeah. And that kind of humility, I think, really does... Um, uh, it stokes something in people. So, um, you know, ultimately, uh, we want, uh, we're, we're creatures that are designed for wisdom and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and just having some something out there that says you can learn here, I think is yeah. very important for your kids. I think it's an interesting point you make, because I, I, I have those same memories somehow in my mind right now of like, you know, looking up a certain topic, but then seeing every other book I didn't open and thinking, mm -hmm. man, these books are filled with so much stuff. I just want to check out the letter J today and read yeah. every article in here, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I still, I still get on, you probably do this too. I don't know. You may not because I know, I don't know. I want to ask, do you get on like uh, Wikipedia, like rabbit holes? Like I'll start on something like, oh, I want to learn something about this. And I'll hop on Wikipedia and I can't even finish the first article before it links something else. Yep. And I'll start reading two paragraphs into that. And the next thing I you know, I'm four pages deep 
Yeah, I think that I have my own brand of that. I'm not sure that it's uh, Wikipedia, um, but I have my rabbit holes that I go down. And uh, my wife uh, makes fun of me a little bit because I'll uh, pull something out that's so obscure that it just had to have been the result of several hours worth of mining uh, on some side or another. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely can identify with that. But ultimately, you asked me about, um, you know, how we have thought about uh, educating our kids and I think the next step in that is not just merely what they were reading or uh, whatever else. It was uh, the decision on education. Um, yeah. For us, that um, uh, that conversation actually began even before our kids were born, if you can believe it. We were both youth ministers at the, you know, um, uh, I mean, I want to be more specific about that, but we were interns in mm-hmm. a very large student ministry uh, that we were a part of in college. And Every year, we would see a new crop of kids uh, come in uh, to uh, our student ministries, and you could see, you could kind of uh, uh, determine what kind of education they were receiving, which hmm. kids were receiving uh, care, which ones were uh, you know, maybe neglected in these areas, which ones were uh, challenging themselves at school and which ones weren't. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, I mean, we could... You could very nearly, with a you know new student size of you know fifty to seventy, uh, tell which ones were receiving which kind of education by you know fifth and sixth grade or seventh and eighth grade. Uh, you could you could see it in them, and uh, so that stoked a lot of conversations even before our kids were born. But we ultimately started talking about how do we want to educate our kids, and yeah. so for us, um, it wasn't just uh, where, but really why and how. Yeah. And so for for us, we. Uh, we see, uh, and this is for Sawyer and I, for our, our convictions, uh, we saw a real commandment to educate our kids come out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, right after you know the very famous uh, passages in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that kind of uh, lines uh, out the Ten Commandments. You actually have uh, them say, um, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord God, Lord your God, uh, commanded me to teach you, that uh, you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes, which I commanded you all the days of your life. And, and so we see that there is something that God wanted for us to teach our kids. And it even uh, says specifically that we need to be careful to teach it to them uh, for their flourishing. It actually includes this idea that teaching our kids God's uh, ways and God's statues will call f- uh, cause flourishing in yeah. them. And so that's where we ultimately get uh, verse 4 that says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse 4, and it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. And that word diligently was very important to Sawyer and I. Yeah. Uh, to your children and to talk uh, uh, to talk, uh, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This, this really gave Sawyer and I a... Uh, a thing to to really think through. We felt like what God was doing was commanding us to put Jesus at the center of you know our kids' education, 
and that we we were delighted to do so, that our kids would flourish in the midst of that. And so um, it's not just that our kids got to five and we you know kicked them out the door to the school that we you know wanted them to go to. It's that we really felt like God was uh, um, commanding uh, that of, of us. And so we took that very seriously. And rather interestingly, uh, as we started talking about it, we ended up on different pages mm. um, uh, on where we were going to uh, send our kids or how we were going to uh, educate them. And uh, I won't get into all of that, but ultimately it, uh, it all boiled down to, we came to a decision point on uh, how we were going to educate our kids and um, and we had to take a step of faith. And so uh, one, one thing that I want to do you know, on this podcast is uh, encourage, first of all, um, people to take the issue of education seriously. Yeah. I think that God commands it of us, but then also know that no matter what you, where you end up on that, um, you know, spectrum or in that decision-making process, it will take faith. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you have to trust God because you have to trust God with the way that your children will end up because his will is going to be done. Yeah. Um, and so I hear, that's just what I think I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, so if there's a biblical command to uh, bring instruction, the instruction of the Lord to your kids, then there is uh, beneath that commandment, I think, a principle that can kind of guide us. And the principle is, as much as I can make out in Scripture, is that uh, Jesus, uh, the person, work of Jesus, needs to be right at the heart of your children's education. And yeah. uh, before anybody jumps to any you know conclusions, I'm, I'm not even necessarily advocating for one particular type of uh, educational model. What I'm saying is, is that uh, no matter which model you use, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, both spouses work and they have to utilize uh, public schools or whether they uh, joyfully and delightfully choose to use public schools or whether it's a, a Christian private school or homeschool or Montessori school or fine arts school, whatever it is, that there is some work that parents are primarily charged to do to put Jesus at the center of their education. Yeah, parents are the primary disciplers of their kids. hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I think agree. that, I think that that's a biblical, uh, ethic. And so it, it's not even necessarily at this point in the conversation that I'm advocating for a specific type of school. Yeah. It's just that I think that there is a principle that Christians should be taking far more seriously to make sure that Jesus is, uh, you know, preeminent yeah. in their kids' education. So what are the, fr- getting back to the very first question I asked you then, cause I think we're there now, what are the fruits positive or negative of having this laissez-faire, you know, let it be kind of attitude, you know, that we've seen in our culture for decades, if not longer, you know, uh, there are negative consequences to this. In my mind, what are some that that stick out to you? Yeah, you bet. And well, so in terms of negative consequences, I I will say this, I think that you're exactly right to frame the question that way, because um, ultimately what our parents uh, need to decide are, um, who are your kids? Um, uh, are kids like a stone? Do they arrive in this world mostly formed, having you know uh, genetics and you know some things that are hard about them that are predetermined, mm-hmm. um, or do they take the shape of the places that you put them? Mm. Uh, how do you treat your kids? Uh, I think that uh, for many of us, especially for uh, Christians, we uh, assume that our kids are not fully formed like a rock. Yeah, uh, they they take the shape of the places that. Uh, uh, that we put them in. Yeah. Most parents know this because they, uh, for for better or worse, will take a look at the kinds of friends that their kids uh, attract, and they'll yeah. say, "Hey, 
these kinds of uh, children aren't uh, aren't bad or anything like that, but they're shaping something about the way that you uh, speak, the way that yeah. you act, how you uh, honor your father and mother is picked up from the place that you are in. Yeah. And so, well, kids are sponges. I mean, that's a common thing. Yeah, that's that's say. exactly right. And and so ultimately, if if that's the way that you approach your your kids, you can't then turn around and have a completely laissez-faire attitude towards the way that they are educated, mm. a live and let live. I do back to your question, I do see that many parents think about their kids as though they've arrived in this world, um, you know, fully formed um, or nearly formed, and that their job as parents is just to foster who they already are. Now, the good of that is, is that God does have a plan for us. He matches that up with uh, personalities that he's given us and everything else. But I think that the negative is, is that if you take that attitude or line of thinking and um, take your hands off of your children as though uh, you're not responsible for discipling them or forming them, something else will. Hmm. Uh, their uh, friend groups, the culture more broadly, the, uh, the the educational institution that they do end up in will form them. Yeah. And so the question is, uh, are they being formed into disciples of Jesus Christ or are they being formed into a myriad of other things. Yeah. Well, it's funny. As I hear you explain the, the dichotomy here, these two two options, I guess we'd say. Um, I've never really thought about it before today, you know, honestly. Maybe I have in not so, such terms, but, like, I, I think now the, the scripture that keeps popping into mind, my mind over and over is, you know, uh, you're the potter, I'm the clay, mm. you know, like, and in some ways... That may not be a direct application of what we're talking about right now, because we're not necessarily speaking of God forming our children, but it does speak to a little bit to the pliability, let's say, the moldability, for lack of better words, of yeah. of, of children, you know, and of adults even. You yeah, know? for like, sure. Like, we can be... We are shaped, I think, by the culture, you know, because even, even still you'd say a, a cord of three strands is not easily broken, yeah. you know, it's because... By those three strands, by those accountability folks that the, the folks that hold you accountable in your life, that will positively impact and mold who you are. Yeah, you know. Well, I actually love that you're using that verse because um, I do think that you know we are uh, plastic, as it were. The mm-hmm. lump of clay is yeah. moldable, like yeah. you said, and I do think that human beings are that way. There are things that are in the human heart that are implacable, um, you know, that are hard and stony. There, are, uh, I'm convinced that each one of us has a thread running through our heart that uh, uh, of sin that yeah. uh, really does need to be you know cut off. There are things about us that. Uh, that do need to be formed more into the image of Christ, but but even beyond that, you mentioned you know uh, you know God being the Potter. Whether we're taking that you know verse out of context, I, I actually think that God is the Potter for my kids. He's forming them, but then the question is also who is He forming them through? Well, He's forming them through all things, but primarily He is forming them through uh, parents. And so uh, there's a way that I think about my you know children. I, I want them to be uh, amazing. I have high aspirations for my kids, not not in terms of ultimately what they will you know produce in terms of their product or how much money they'll make or how much prestige that they will have. Yeah. But I am very concerned and have like high aspirations that they'll be men and women of integrity and mm-hmm. character and um, and so I do at some point want to ask them to follow me 
as I follow Christ. Yeah. Uh, so if, if God is the potter, he's forming me, and he's mm-hmm. forming my kids, but he's forming my kids also through, through me. And yeah. so I have a very active role in that. So I think that that's a perfect, you know, verse to use. Yeah. It's a, it's a weight, man, you know, if, when you frame it like that, you know, just yet another way in which uh, the Lord uses us as parents and as fathers um, to to expand his kingdom and to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world. Um, our behavior, I mean, this is obvious, right? But in some levels, but in, as you think about all the implication of this, it gets heavier and heavier. Our behavior really, truly, deeply impacts our children. Yeah. You know, in ways that sometimes we won't even see for years or maybe decades to come. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that back to the previous point and even using some of that clay illustration, um, if we were... Um, if we are malleable, if we ought to be formed for parents to take a um, live and let live, hands-off approach to their parenting, uh, we'll end up with deformed kids, malformed kids, mm. and ultimately those will turn into fragile, you know, malformed adults. Uh, ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass, is actually now, I think, just as of this year, has uh, moved over to be a university president again at the University of Florida, if I'm not mistaken. But several years ago, he came out with a book called The Vanishing American Adult, and he talked about this very point that um, we are producing a generation of kids that uh, are not really turning into full-formed adults, and I, I've got to think that the reason why is because we haven't really taken their formation seriously, and it all results from that hands-off approach. But yeah. um, I, I think that uh, he's a good person to read on this. Jonathan Haid is a secular uh, writer um, who point some of this out, uh, specifically as it relates to the formation that our kids receive through social media right now, and mm. it's pretty alarming. And so uh, all that back to the point of, um, you know, Christian parents ought to be uh, very uh, intentional with the way that they, um, with the way that they uh, form and educate their kids yeah. with Jesus uh, very much in view. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. When a parent is dedicated to raising their children well, they're committed, um, and they're trying to decide the route for education. What do you think should be their considerations? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, I want to um, do two things up front. I want to uh, not pretend like I am, uh, you know, unbiased. I, you know, uh, my wife and I have arrived at conclusions and convictions uh, for our own children of ways that we feel, you know, uh, is is best fitting, you know, for us. Um, and so I do want to advocate for those. I'm obviously, you know, on a board of a, you know, classical Christian school. I want to advocate for that full-throatedly. But I also don't want to lose anybody in that uh, to think that I believe that there is one right best way to, uh, to form kids. If what I'm really advocating for is uh, Jesus at the center of our kids' formation and education, uh, then what I really want to do is um, ask uh, uh, that that be considered really more broadly. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all um, you know, uh, opportunity for all parents. I, I very commonly hear uh, people talk about uh, public school in a way that uh, has their kids Kids as missionaries going into the school or yeah. the family yeah, being a, a light in the school. And I don't want to take, you know, too much away from that. There are, I think, there are really noble aspirations there. I think that there yeah. are good considerations there. And Agreed. I do think that it is permissible. And so I want to say that I've also heard in Christian, you know, communities, uh, people say that the one 
right best way is uh, homeschooling and that in order to, uh, you know, uh, protect kids from outside, uh, you know, uh, formation and things like that, they really need to be educated in the home. I think that there's a really good principle there, just like, you know, before that uh, those parents are wanting for, um, you know, a home to be the place that they're shaped and formed in. I think that's very noble. Uh, But to pretend like that is the only answer, I think is maybe short-sighted or or, or certainly doesn't take into account that God can uh, give a um, give a conscience for some other way. And so the primary thing that I want to, that I really want to stick my feet in is the principle of Jesus at the center of education. Uh, yeah. I really can't say that enough, yeah. but it, it seems like for many parents, they're going to, uh, you know, choose whatever they are and then believe that that's, you know, uh, one right best way. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, God gives convictions and we should advocate for those things. So I'll do the same, you know, during this time. I, I think that in what I see in the public school, system right now from a very limited vantage point is a great need for um, uh, Christians to be very involved there. And so I really yeah. celebrate uh, uh, Christians who are, you know, public education teachers. We And you'd say that even locally in a place like Alito or Fort Worth. Uh, absolutely. Conser- yeah. Pretty conservative place. Yeah, maybe even specifically, because uh, we can, uh, you know, we can think that these, uh, you know, places um, are, uh, you know, use your word, very conservative, you know, places. But um, the truth is, is that there's a lot of things going on in our educational system right now that leave a lot of darkness um, mm-hmm. there. And so having Christians who are willing to take uh, the light of Jesus Christ into those places, especially as teachers, it's very noble, it's very good. Yeah. Uh, I think that for Christians that aren't teachers, that are wanting to go into those spaces and uh, take their kids there, take their families there, um, I think that that can be a, a you know permissible you know situation uh, that I don't want to bind anybody's uh, conscience on that. Yeah. I do think that those parents need to be very, very intentional, though, that there is a worldview on sale in our public school systems that uh, not monolithically, but very often runs, you know, uh, up against the things that God says are are good, that are noble, yeah. that are beneficial. And it seems increasingly right. so in recent years, in my mind, because yeah. I, grew up, I grew up in public, you yeah. know, school and I felt like culturally, what I maybe it's just the Judeo-Christian, you know, general general worldview. You know, there was pup present in my rural Texas school mm-hmm. at the time. Like I, I remember saying things publicly and writing things in the school paper publicly that today, if I wrote them, I might get expelled. Yeah, you know, um, and. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't know what I'm saying. Like, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I don't think that it's. Uh, I don't think that it's a given that public school is hostile to faith in all circumstances. No, I think that that no. would be overstated. But to say that it never is, I think, would be uh, more incorrect. Yeah, hey, one of the big things uh, that we've hashed on a lot in these first few episodes of this podcast is you know the role of father as protector, mm-hmm. father as shepherd. It's you know maybe the primary charge that God gives to dads. specifically other than leading your children to faith, you know, um, how, what would you say to a parent, uh, in any context? I mean, but especially I think of parents whose, whose kids might be in public school or might be in a school, any school, forget just public, any school. What would you say to parents of school aged children as it pertains to education? How, what are the things that, um, a protective father would be on the lookout for? 
Uh, that's a great question. You're probably asking about particular instances or specific things. And I think I think that there is a, a long list of things that we could come up with. Right. And I guess what I mean, to refine that down a little further, what... Obviously, you want to be on guard for every single possible sin or every single possible statement that comes out. Like, how can a father... Um, where does it start, I guess? Practically speaking, where does a father begin to guard their children's heart in a way that leads them towards the gospel, you know, when, as it pertains to education, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what... That's a, I don't no, know no, what no. I, I think it's a great question. And, I, <laughs> and honestly, I, I think that there... Again, if you examine Scripture, you're never going to see, a, a, you know, a specific verse or set of verses or, you know, anything like it in Scripture that say, thou shalt not educate your children this way, or thou shalt education educate your children precisely this way. Right. There's no mention of school boards in the New Testament. No, for yeah. sure. I, I do think that, I, I don't want to run too far away from the fact that I do think that Scripture is sufficient for us mm-hmm. uh, to uh, gain biblical wisdom and insights into how we educate our children. Yeah. And and so one of them that I would mention is, uh, is this out of Luke chapter 6, verse 40. It says that uh, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Hmm. Um, here's what I gained from that. I I think that a father, in terms of protecting you know his children, ought to be considering who are those teachers, who are those disciplers that are in my child's life. Yeah. I think it would be a mistake to believe that a father alone is the only person that does that. And right. of course, we do these things in community. We do them as uh, as a church, as mm-hmm. family and friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do them also, though, in our educational communities. And so whether it's a homeschool co-op, whether it is a Montessori school, a you know Christian school, or whether it is a public school, mm-hmm. ask yourself the question, who is it? that is discipling my child. And think of it in those terms. Hmm. Who is the teacher that my child is not going to be greater than? And so the principle there is um, when we make these determinations for our kids to go somewhere uh, Monday through Friday for hours at a time, if, if your child is not going to rise above their teacher you want a pretty good teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so first and foremost, we have to look inwardly and say, am I the kind of teacher that I want for my child? Yeah. And for dads that honestly answer, no, I'm not really, yeah. um, become that. Set about the process of, uh, of learning yourself and mm. uh, learning scripture, teaching it to your kids. Like there is, yeah. it is never too late for you to be the teacher that is discipling your child. Uh, because uh, if you are, um, uh, if you're not pursuing Jesus, if you're mediocre, if these kinds of things, uh, if, you know, kind of kept you from taking that primary discipleship relationship with your kids, um, then it's going to be very hard. Uh, again, you know, this is a principle. It's not impossible. You know, God, mm-hmm. uh, you know, saves, uh, you know, uh, saves people all the time and disciples them into maturity. Yeah. Um, but who Absolutely. is it? If it's you, then you know, rise to that occasion. Be, uh, you know, be the kind of uh, 
man or woman that is uh, worthy of discipling your child. But then we also have to specifically look at the teachers at the place where our kids are being educated and saying, do I want for my children to be like them? When they are fully formed, do I want them to be like this teacher? Yeah. Um, and so that's that's easier to do at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not advocating necessarily for homeschool, but it is easier to consider because you know generally who you and your spouse are. Yeah. It's a little bit more difficult when you're, you know, looking at maybe a small Christian school, being able to evaluate, okay, there are bare minimum, there are, you know, 13 years of school that my kids are going to be receiving, you know, here. Uh, they'll have, uh, you know, a dozen, maybe two dozen, maybe even three dozen, you know, different teachers over this time. Do I want them to have that kind of essence, that flavor, that yeah. uh, that smell on them? Are they? Do I want them to be discipled by these people? Mm-hmm. And then if you're in you know, a, uh, a public school environment, be honest. Like, do you want for your children to look like, you know, these teachers? Well, that's a very, that's an impossible question to answer because, you know, not all public schools are, you know, precisely the same, but it is something that would be, uh, worthwhile to think about. And fathers in particular, like you're saying, should be taking that protective role and saying, do I want for my children to look like this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, as I think about, uh, basically all my friends, you know, I've, my, my son's going to start kindergarten here in the fall. Um, you know, basically all my friends are having babies or they have school age children. The question of where they're going to, where they're going to go to school. And like, I, I, I think it's so great what you said of who do you want your children to look like? I think it's really important because you, you think about just the number of hours that your children are going to spend for 12 years in the presence of these teachers who have a specific worldview, who have a specific um, personality style and things yep. along those lines. Everything about them is going to... Well, no, granted, your teacher will change, could, could change from hour to hour, you know, through all these years, but you know, depending on what period you're in and stuff, but... There's, it's a culmination effect that's yeah. the cumulative, cumulative effect is going to happen. Um, yeah, and, and to that point, I mean, a, a school, any, any institution, big or small, is going to have uh, things that they advocate for, mm-hmm. uh, things that they look like. And so if our kids are moldable, if they're formed the way that we talked uh, about earlier, it's very important for you to consider the shape of the place that you're putting them in. Yeah. Does it look like the cross? Is it the shape of the cross? Mm. Is it the shape of an empty tomb? Like mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking, mm-hmm. uh, well, I want my kids to be in spaces like that. Mm. Is it, um, is the institution that I'm putting my kids in, uh, the shape of, uh, something else, an idol, um, and, and this can come by way of success as an yeah. idol. Um, the idol uh, itself. Da- yeah, dads need to be thinking very specifically about what education uh, for their children is for. What do you value? Yeah. Do you want for your kids to get into a specific college? Um, is, is that the greatest value that you have? If it is, then you'll choose a school according to, to that. that value. You'll, if you want your child to become an Aggie because you were an Aggie, you'll put them in a school that is the shape of, you know, whatever, uh, you know, is going to make them most likely to become Aggies. And, yeah. uh, if you want for your kids to earn the most amount of money then you're going to put them in an educational environment. If you want your kids, and I hear this all the time to quote, not be weird, 
to be social in ways that are deemed you know access uh, uh, you acceptable know, acceptable yeah. to you know uh, to whatever community in, you're in you're going to put them into uh, a institution that is intended to shape them in a way where they look like the rest of uh, the community yeah and so even when my wife and I think about these things and we tell our kids this all the time um, their grades do not matter to me nearly as much as their character does. Mm. Um, I want them Amen. to be shaped like Jesus. I want them yeah. to be men and women of integrity, like we've already talked about. I want them to have some old world values, uh, valor, courage, you mm-hmm. know, these kinds of character elements. And more and more, I don't think that we see institutions that are designed that are shaped in that way. Yeah. Uh, most are you know, either geared towards success or maybe it's just... Uh, you know, it, um, it's just a social uh, socialization tool, mm-hmm. and that's the way that it's shaped. Yeah, yeah you see that. Well, <clears throat> I think you see this a whole lot. I have this theory in my mind, like you see this a lot with most university degrees, you know, mm-hmm. where it's you go to college because that's the expected thing, mm-hmm. not necessarily because you desire a certain type of outcome yeah. with it. And also a lot of universities, you know, public or private are, are places where you go to become a good employee, yeah. you know, uh, because that's what we decide is we as a, we as Americans have decided is quote unquote success. Yeah. You're worth what your job is. Your yeah. economic utility is the highest value. And so come here and we'll shape you yeah. in the shape of a worker and right. uh, work is good. You know, Absolutely. being able work. to provide for your family is yeah. wonderful. Not a bad thing. Uh, no, not at all. But the but gospel should be at the center. I believe so. Yeah. So at, at uh, Covenant Classical School, the school where I'm on the board of, are um, literally there's a brass plaque that as you walk into the school, it says, in all things Christ preeminent. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a distillation of scripture saying that Christ needs to be at the center of all things. And so that's, that's the value that... Mm-hmm. Sawyer and I have, and that's what we—that's the shape that we want for our, our, you know, for our children. And so, um, so as they walk in, they get to see this—that that's the goal, that's the mm-hmm. aspiration. Do we attain that perfectly? Of course not. No institution, you know, arrives at these things, you know, perfectly. Yeah. But that is the aim, and that's where we want to go. And yeah. so, I, I think that um, uh, you're right in saying that. Uh, at least for me, the way that I see it. Uh, for a Christian parent to want their kids to look like, smell like, be like Jesus, uh, leaving out um, or pretending like education isn't one of the primary ways that you disciple your kids towards that, uh, I yeah. think is an error. Well, so in, in the application process, you know, my, my son's going to be going to Covenant, you know, yep. as you know, here in the fall. Super excited about that. Um, one of the things I'm most excited about was... Uh, you have to forgive me because I forget the name of the book that I was supposed to read. A part of that's part of the application process, but I did read several portions of this book for the application cycle. And it's a well-trained mind, likely. Is <laughs> uh, that the name of it? I believe we, so. We use a couple for yes, um, and it talked about. And I wanted to. The reason I'm asking is because that you said something that I think pulls from that. Those quoted also in that text, more or less paraphrasing that text, but the idea that. Our child's education is not merely t- to serve themselves. Yeah. It is to serve the kingdom of God. That's right. You know, and I love that. I, I, it's something that, like, as I, as I say it out loud now and I think about it, it makes sense. It, you know, it's like, oh, obviously, you know, the Lord's going to use all of us mm-hmm. to, for his purposes. But, like, I never really thought about it until just applying to have my son in school. Like, you know, the school asked us in the application, like, to read through this and do you agree 
that the point of their education is to make them effective communicators and effective um, workers of the gospel. Yeah. You know, and I do. Yeah. I absolutely do. Um, you know, my child's career, whether or not he's called into ministry or he's called into any of a number of other career paths, you know, as an employee or as a business owner or anything in between, the Lord is going to use my son for his purposes. Yeah. And I want him to be effective at, uh, the thing I especially love about the classical model, and this is one thing I was going to ask you next is to give like a brief, you know, explanation of what classical school is. Cause I'd never even heard of classical school yep. until my, uh, brother and sister-in-law attended one down in the hill country, mm-hmm. a Christian classical school. And I was just really blown away at, um, I mean, I knew they were going to be predisposed to be smart because my father-in-law is a very intelligent man. Okay. My mother-in-law is a very intelligent woman, but then further to have their, those, you know, perhaps, uh, inherited traits fostered further, uh, through their classical education. Like I, I was, I thought it'd be great to have you now, give a ad, you know advocate for a classical Christian education for those of us who may not even know what they are yeah you what, are, what it is excuse well me. the trick there is brief I'm, I'm not given to brevity but uh, but I will you know if you I, keep it under five minutes it's fine. <clears throat> no no no. I, I, I've actually I have the elevator speech and so mm-hmm. we'll uh, uh, because I, I do consider myself an advocate for this kind of yeah. educational model not as the one right best way but as the way that I think that many Christians Absolutely. should should consider um, Absolutely. But, but ultimately the the book that I think you were referring to earlier was was um, wisdom and eloquence. That's the one. Okay. Yes, thank you. And, and uh, for anybody who's really wanting to, you know, take a deep dive on that, um, you know, pick up that book versus what I you're going to hear me saying. Yeah, we read like three chapters out of the book. I loved it. It was like, I was reading it. And it was just every page like, yes. 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 Okay. Yes. This is a, like, it was putting words to separate thoughts. I was forming a thread out of different thoughts. Yeah, that's some different parts of my brain. Yeah, you know. Well, as it relates to classical education, to provide a um, you know kind of a, a simple flyby, what I would say is this: that um, first, kind of a, definitionally, it has to do with classical things. So we're 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 going back and we're teaching Latin, mm-hmm. we're teaching Aristotle, we're teaching Plato. Mm-hmm. More recently than that, we're teaching great works of literature. So you're having to encounter Dante, mm-hmm. um, you're having to you know take on board uh, you know Tolstoy and these kinds of novels. You're you're going to over the course of your education encounter things that are old. Mm-hmm. Now for the modern sense. And I do use that word in particular because there is a sensibility that goes with it. Many people are like, well, we stand on the edge of history. The things behind us were maybe unclear, maybe even bad. Why would you want to introduce old things to your children? Yeah, there's a disdain. In some ways. Yeah, I, I think that that, that can be true, uh, certainly. The the sensibility, though, that we want something new to educate our children, that we need new ideas, that we need a, a progressive, you know, kind of um, <clears throat> outline for the way that we educate our kids is, is one that should be taken up on its own terms. And, and you, should, you should ask yourself, do I want for my local school board to be introducing, you know, uh, new uh, ideas, you know, to uh, to my child, or 
Um, do you want to root your child's education in something that's old? So there's a sensibility yeah. portion of it, but that doesn't really get it uh, exactly what uh, classical education is. Essentially, what we do is we take a look at the way that uh, human beings, uh, especially in the West, have been um, educated really up until about 100 years ago. It was uh, having to encounter old texts, including the Bible and you know mm-hmm. uh, 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 ancient you know creation literature and these kinds of things and asking for uh, children to to be shaped and formed by those things. And so we break up a classical education into what's called the trivium. Mm -hmm. You have uh, the grammar school, which is, you know, uh, very young. You have logic, and then you have rhetoric. And the idea is is that in grammar, uh, you're not necessarily uh, considering how your five-year-old is able to eloquently speak, uh, you know, the, the truths of some ancient text. Mm-hmm. What you're trying to do is, uh, is, is put information in their brains. We're not asking them to do anything, you know, with it, but to memorize it. So there's a lot of memorization. There's a lot of, you know, teaching, uh, you know, just the basics, whether it's mathematics or science or these sorts of things. And you're teaching it in context with one another. And so you're maybe teaching uh, literature in the context of the historical, you know, kind of time that uh, that it was written, and so you're trying to draw some threads between all of this information, so that your uh, student doesn't necessarily understand it fully, or can process it, or give a dissertation on it, but so that they are able to receive and learn how to receive information in the grammar stage. The logic portion of it is kind of our, you know, uh, middle school years where Mm -hmm. we're asking them to then begin starting to um, process through that information. So Mm -hmm. we're still feeding you information, but now we're wanting you to do something with it. We want Mm -hmm. you to draw connections between uh, different things. We want you to actually literally uh, study, you know, classical logic, if this, then this, Mm -hmm. uh, even to the point of building out equations to, you know, think through how you might logically think through something. Mm -hmm. And then uh, ultimately, and the the goal is, is that in the rhetoric phase in the high school, what other, you know, people call high school phase, that we're asking you to still receive information, still uh, think through it logically, but then now defend those things. Mm. And so we, we want you to think and, you know, uh, then begin uh, defending and proclaiming, you know, those things with some amount of eloquence. And so we don't just want for you to learn how to receive information and parrot it back on some Scantron tests. Yeah. Uh, we're not even just looking for you to be able to take the information on board, think about it logically, but then keep it to yourself. But as you mentioned, with your desire for your son that he might be able to serve other people, so much of our life not just as citizens, uh, but as good neighbors, as Christian neighbors, is the ability to actually verbalize the things that we, you know, think, give uh, um, a defense of our faith, these sorts of things. And so yeah. that's that's a very much a flyby on the trivium, and anybody who's really, you know, in these worlds would, of course, correct me or <laughs> add a million things onto it. Right. But, uh, yeah. but a classical education, at the end of the day, if I could summarize it this way, I think is, is a fairly humble education, because 
because what it's doing is asking you to root uh, yourself, root your kids in old ideas. So we're trying to teach new dogs old tricks. Hmm. We're not trying to uh, come up with new principles and things yeah. now that we find value in now yeah. um, and, uh, and then ask you to remember it until some new group comes along and decides that that's bunk and yeah. they're on to the next thing. And so um, th- I, I do want to advocate for it in that way. I mean, asking parents, do you want to uh, root your kids in tradition and time-tested uh, literature in old wisdom, or do you want it to be new? Yeah. Do you want it to be uh, changed? Do you want it to be new interpretations? Or do you want it to be critical mm-hmm. of all things in the past without an eye towards whatever real kernels of wisdom or gold might be there? So, yeah. I like um, what you said about time-tested. Yeah. You know, because <clears throat> when I hear new, new methodologies, new ways, I hear untested. Yeah. I hear unproven, you know, and, and we don't know what the effects of my ear, my red flags go up in my mind, I guess I should say, because I hear you say new methodologies and like on paper, you know, something could make sense. But as we know, a number of things in all many walks of life make sense on paper, but when practical application comes, we don't know what the effects of these things are down the road. Yeah. You know, we, we see this, uh, I mean, we've seen it with, with, with uh, in recent years, like with some of the COVID stuff, like we don't know what the long-term effects of, for example, this vaccine might be. Like it might be okay, it may not be okay. We'll know. De- decades will have to play out before we know fully what the effects of this thing were. You know, uh, we we don't know always what the effects of this one small change we do to our math curriculum. How we explain, you know, nine times six. You know, we don't, if we explain it this way versus this way versus this way, sure, all three answers might give us the correct answer of 54, but what are the effects of this as this child goes from third grade into 10th grade into college years, you know, I I don't know. So I think there's beauty in, in the, like you say, in teaching new dogs old tricks because these are time-tested methodologies. Yeah, and this may be a bit of a rabbit trail, but it certainly can help uh, us think through how we do educate our children. Um, You know, uh, old thinker um, uh, Jean Rousseau uh, actually um, uh, said uh, that the the, the human being is born free, but everywhere in chains. This is a very kind of liberating idea that that someone might be born kind of, you know, in essence, uh, free and fully formed, and we just need to foster and allow that, you know, child to express however it is, and that it's really just the institutions in our lives that ultimately enslave us. So whether Mm. it's family or whether it is uh, religion or whether it's our methodology in schooling, that Mm. his his idea really reverberates all the way up until today. And I'll give two political examples, but from both sides of the aisle, you have Barack Obama saying that we want change, Mm -hmm. and you have even um, uh, a man like Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, say that we stand on the edge of history, uh, able to remake the world uh, in front of us. Well, that's a very liberating idea. Yeah. You have to decide whether or not human beings are really capable of that. If we if we forsake the past, if we aren't time tested the way that you uh, the, that word kind of you know reached out and grabbed you. If we're if we're willing to remake a new thing, I don't want to demonize that because there's um, there are real intellectual roots there where people. Um, 
people are trying to identify and address real problems through change. So I don't yes. want to demonize it. Absolutely. But you do yeah. actually have to answer the question, are we able to do that? Is, is our society from the top down really able uh, to identify and fix all problems, especially after having torn down some of those institutions that Rousseau would have liked to have seen torn down, like the family. If you tear down the family, is something better going to rise in its place? If you uh, disintegrate, you know, a, a classical model of education, which everybody received up until, you know, 100 years ago, well, I shouldn't say everybody, of course, education was not given to everybody, and that's a, it's a good thing that it is mm -hmm. available for, for people now, but if you, if you leave that behind, if you leave these magnificent thinkers, like like, you know, uh, Aristotle behind and say, we're not going to teach that. We're going to teach, you know, uh, modern critical theory. Um, you really have to be on the other side willing to say that uh, I want whatever world is out there in the distance, um, uh, whatever new world might be there, rather than one that has uh, has been time-tested. And so for, for me and my wife, it's been very a very clear answer. I want to... Um, I want to instill old principles in yeah. my children. I want for them to grow up in a space where um, those uh, disciple makers and teachers and administrators have partnered with us to impart a worldview with Jesus right at the center. Yeah. And, and that's not a new thing. It's an old thing. Hmm. Well, that leads us right into our last question or two that I have for you on the subject. Um, you know, the common pushback, uh, I think, to... <clears throat> private school and then even one that I had you know when I found out my brother and sister-in-law were uh, you know doing a doing private school was you know how do I expose them then to the outside world because at some point you're gonna have an 18 year old who you know they've never seen any bad movies and they've never experienced any negative influences and then they're gonna go off to a place like Texas A&M you know where there's a world bunch of different or or even you know or anything like that you know like I say A&M because that's where they went, but yeah. you know, it, that was a thought that I had early on. So I guess my question for you as a pastor, as a father, as an elder, as an advocate for classical education, you have three kids, you have, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is your oldest a teenager yet? Is 13. That's what I yeah, thought. Yeah. Doing it. Yeah. So you have a teenager now, you know, you've got a teenager and you've got a younger child, um, who I, I just, all three, I just love, but how do you... How do you introduce them to the outside world? Yeah. If they're, a, if they're living at the family compound at home and then they're going to the Christian private school where, you know, when the rubber meets the road one day where they're going to meet people who aren't biblical people and biblical worldviews, how do you, how do you introduce that? Yeah. What a wonderful question. And, and to be uh, totally honest, if I knew the answer precisely to that question, uh, I'd write a book, and nobody's asking me to do that. So <laughs> I want to, I want to I, I approach this. Appreciate from, the honesty. Yeah, from my uh, limited perspective and uh, and and also experience, because I only have the three children that I have. Um, what I will say is very prayerfully. Number one. Yeah. Um, I will be very patient. Number two. Hmm. Um, I will uh, consult. Um, not just God in prayer, but through the Proverbs and Psalms, the wisdom literature and mm -hmm. these kinds of things. Uh, my goal in life is not to cloister my kids away from a, uh, from a world that I disapprove of. Yeah. My goal is to form them into uh, you know, men and a woman who 
who uh, can go out and exist in that world and have the fragrance of Jesus Christ. And, um, and mm. so the question is, is not easy to be particular about. I can tell you a little bit about what we've done, um, but it is to focus first on their formation. Um, I think that everybody would agree that um, taking a two-year-old to the red light district is unwise. It's, uh, it's unhelpful for the formation of that child. In most instances, like that would be neglectful and harmful. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but then also uh, to have children that only first encounter the world that they'll be living in for, you know, Lord willing, decades, um, uh, only once upon they, you know, get out of high school, seems unhelpful as well. And so the real question for every, you know, Christian parent and, mm-hmm. you know, for every, every parent out there is yeah. when and how to uh, introduce them to uh, to a world that can be uh, cruel and filled with all kinds of uh, slavery and idolatry and hurt and but also a lot of beauty and a lot of uh, grace. So so we want to we want to um, we want to introduce our children to that very intentionally. So uh, as I think through my three children, I've got my thirteen year old, and my thirteen year old is. Uh, uh, beautiful young man. He is uh, growing up uh, and um, has a lot of character for his age. Mm-hmm. He also, there is something about him that is uh, a bit the chameleon. He'll he'll blend into his surroundings. He'll he'll sponge up, you know, some of the things around him because there are uh, parts of his heart that really value. Um, uh, being a part, mm-hmm. um, looking like the people around him. And so he, he wants access to, you know, things, uh, like, uh, chat groups because he doesn't want to be left out. My daughter is not like that. She's mm-hmm. very contented, uh, not to be a part of online conversations. She? Uh, she's 11 mm-hmm. right now. She's, uh, at least for the time being, um, doesn't have a desire, you know, uh, but she, she also has a constitution that really knows who she is mm-hmm. and is not afraid to be that. And so she doesn't have that same um, kind of sponge-like mentality, and we're still figuring out the third one, Henry. He's uh, <laughs> uh, he's he's a trip. He's definitely our one with the best sense of humor. Yes, uh, that's for sure. He cracks so, me up on the regular. Like, yeah, he's great. he's hysterical and going to be a tremendous problem. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but the uh, but uh, uh, Ryan and Jackson um, are very different, and so for me to uh, consider introducing them to the world. Um, giving them access to different things at the same rate doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, it has to be tailored. Uh, yeah, well, but I, and we, of course, we say, of course, but the truth is, is that there's something in the modern psyche that says that, you know, we approach things equitably, and, which is a good thing, or uh, equally or at the same time or whatever else. Well, um, there are some good parts of that, but I would love to push back on that because maybe my uh, maybe one child is ready before the other one mm-hmm. is to encounter you know certain kinds of things, um, um, and so ultimately I can tell you that we've started conversations about uh, about sex mm-hmm. and about uh, the world and how it is cruel with Jackson uh, over the course of time mm. you know uh, we uh, started um, we, we essentially with Jackson broke uh, this is going to sound very um, very strategic and it was but not as much as it sounds when you say it out loud we, we said before you're eight years old you're a child 
And then uh, when you're eight, I actually literally took him aside. We made a, you know, a day of it. And I had a conversation saying, hey, I don't expect for you as an eight-year-old to be an adult. Mm -hmm. But what I do want to do is use the next five years from eight till 13, putting childishness away. And then when he turned 13, we did a retreat, just he and I, we played mm -hmm. some golf, we went out to the lake, and we sat down and I said, now, I don't want you just to put childishness away, I want you to put adulthood on. These are, you know, fairly specific languages uh -huh. uh, having to do with scripture. And so that meant that while he was a child... Um, I raised him like a child. Yeah. I didn't mind protecting him. I would tell you that I was protecting him. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't need for him to encounter the, uh, the with full blush the sins of this world. Of course. And I wasn't going to apologize to anybody for that. That didn't mean that he didn't learn what the f word was in <laughs> you know yeah. first grade. It didn't mean that he didn't encounter it. It just meant that for me, I didn't mind protecting him from some of that stuff. As yeah. he put childishness off, we did start introducing some topics. You know, he went in at one point in time to uh, the uh, to a store of a local nonprofit where women who are coming out of a situation where they've been trafficked are actually creating um, uh, necklaces and these sorts of things, yeah. regaining dignity through, uh, um, uh, through work and through community there at this uh, local nonprofit. And yeah. uh, my son saw a shirt that said, girls are not for sale. Hmm. And he chuckled to himself and because he can't imagine what that means. Yeah. And he said, you know, mom, what does that mean? And my mom, uh, my mom, my wife was able to actually explain, here's what this store is doing hmm. and, and do it in an age appropriate way. And you could see some of the light bulbs start to click on. Yeah. You know, now he's 13 and we're talking, you know, uh, about these things all the time because yeah. I want for him to, we have him in on specific sports teams where he's encountering people from a variety of different family backgrounds. We're being very intentional because our life could be very cloistered. There could be a compound, there could be a, right. you know, a, a bubble wrap and duct tape type of mentality and we want to begin introducing him but we're doing that in an entirely different way with our daughter and with her personality and so um, I wish that I could answer it specifically but I guess if I just boiled down mm -hmm. boiled it all down I would say we're doing it prayerfully patiently and we're doing it with as much as we can um, some discernment we're also doing it in community with other other Christians and trying to figure out and, and fail together yeah. and, uh, and and do that in a way where we can do it in a, uh, a a way that is um, uh, a community activity too. Yeah. Well, I think that's a thoughtful answer. I appreciate that. It's yeah. nice to, nice to hear as, as someone I respect, you know, you and Sawyer both like I, it's, it's nice to hear what you're doing. Um, and it gives me a lot to think about, yeah. you know, as I raise my own kids, um, shifting gears a little bit here as we wind down, uh, what does the word defiant mean to you? The name of this podcast is the Defiant Dad Podcast, mm -hmm. and I'd like for you to work, define that word in your own terms. Well, I've cheated a little bit and heard you define it at the uh, at the beginning of all of your uh, podcasts. Uh, what I would say is um, um, that, uh, yeah, I do think that uh, defiant is to have a little bit of a fight in you, to actually stand up for something, to, um, uh, to have some courage when provoked, uh, to actually put on masculinity and mm -hmm. being a dad. Um, I love the definitions that you've uh, given. And I, I'm not sure that I would um, add all that much to like a technical definition. Uh, if you were asking me what um, defiant looks like in my life, 
Um, I really don't know that I could uh, tell you anything uh, better than um, than just saying that I'm willing to stand up for um, for God's word. Mm. The the mm-hmm. thing I guess that I would say. I'm not a very defiant person by uh, by dint of personality. I um, there are some people, of course, that you know I've had to maybe have fight or a tussle with, uh, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily physically, but just yeah. you know uh, with a battle of ideas and had to stand up for things that I believe in. But I think that the most helpful way that we can think of it is to just simply say the things that God says. I see in modern Christendom and in dads and men in particular a willingness to be passive and to go with the flow, yeah. uh, to not ruffle feathers, to be willing to, um, I think, cloak a passivity in a desire for uh, peace and unity, but mm-hmm. I don't think that that's what we're really getting. Yes. Um, I think that uh, God's Word says some things that are really joyful and amazing and beautiful and glorious, and He says uh, some things in His Word that are hard, that uh, clash with modern sensibilities, and that uh, maybe strike us the wrong way, maybe even as you know, uh, decades-old Christians uh, wish that it wasn't that way, uh, if we're being honest. And we can even agree with David and some of his questions of, of God and do so still with, the, with fear mm-hmm. and reverence for God. But my heart always breaks when I see um, men, uh, dads, shrink back from a willingness to just simply say what God's Word says. Yeah. Uh, I think that we find uh, a way to uh, perform theological contortion uh, or to run and hide um, away from these things. Um, yeah. and, and maybe that it's that I'm not on social media. Maybe it's that I don't have a job that would be um, that I could have a fireable offense from, and so I just uh, typically am a little less scared. But um, when I when I read things in Scripture and God says them to me, and especially when He says things clearly, mm-hmm. I want to be defiant. I yeah. want to be willing to say things um, that may seem uh, politically incorrect or you know uh, socially taboo, if God says that they're right. Um, yeah. uh, not foremost because I love being right. Uh, but because I just simply want to say the things that he says. So yeah. um, I think that men, dads in particular, could be far more defiant, uh, saying the things that God says in his word, doing the things that God says in his word, seeking out and taking that long, hard road through um, uh, the process of building a durable worldview and then um, and then be living in defiance to live in order with it. Man, crushed it. Yeah, yeah I completely agree. <laughs> yeah. I, won't add, I won't add a single word to that. That's great. Um, three lighthearted questions here, and we'll wrap up. All right. Uh, increasingly lighthearted. Um, <clears throat> and I usually send these out to my guests in advance, so I apologize on putting you on the spot. Although, if you've listened to a complete episode or two, you know what they are. Uh, question number one, what is a book, uh, other than the Bible, that has significantly impacted your personal theology? Personal theology... Uh, ooh, that's that is a good question because uh, without the word theology, I would say that it, uh, "Reason for God" by Timothy Keller um, is the one that I've read the most. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it, it is a apologetic book for a postmodern world as uh, as C.S. Lewis's "Mere Christianity" was to a uh, to modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that book. It shaped me hugely, um, and uh, and so I would have said that if it's 
theologically, I would say um, John Piper's God is the Gospel is, I think, the most important book that I've read Mm. on theology, the central premise of which is that um, uh, God... Uh, is the good news to us the the I, the fact that we those who are hidden in Christ get Jesus yeah. in it for all of eternity is the good news uh, the the question that he asks and answers there is if you could have heaven but Jesus was not there would it really be good news and that was revolutionary for me at the time that I read it I can't. Uh, uh, I think that it's the most important book that John Piper has ever written. Mm. In fact, I think that he says so himself. Wow. Um, and so, I'm have to check that one out. Yeah, it's wonderful. I love that. Um, next question, more, a little more lighthearted. Um, what is one controversial food opinion you have? It can be about a certain type of food, a certain dish. And to give you an example, uh, our good friend Jeff Jameson said he is absolutely repulsed by chocolate. Oh, goodness. Um, well, my first blush answer was not increasingly lighthearted. Uh, it's that uh, I, I don't have the healthiest relationship to food, and so okay. I'm not sure that I'm the right person to uh, ask about this. But I, I do think that there are uh, modern religions out there with dietary laws. And so I have like this thing inside of me that when people are like, I don't eat anything with a shadow, to quote the symptoms, okay. um, I, 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 I'm naturally repulsed. I'm like, well, I'm going to eat it anyway. Yeah. And so, um, man, Man, a controversial food opinion that is lighthearted. Um, uh, I don't know that I have one that springs immediately. You like pretty much everything. Like there's nothing Man, you don't, you don't care for. It's unfortunate that I like too many things, <laughs> and so uh, likewise. Yeah. So that's uh, <laughs> okay. I, I do. I for for whatever it's worth, I um, enjoyed a burger with you from uh, Kincaid's today, mm-hmm. and uh, hamburgers as a food are entirely under uh, underrated, mm-hmm. even though they are sought after so much. I yeah. I'm a burger connoisseur. Yeah. And so uh, I'll, I'll give you maybe a lighthearted opinion. Uh, the Modern Art Museum in Fort Worth has one of the best burgers I've ever had. Okay, that's something I've never heard. That's no. fascinating. Yep, go there and get it. It's uh, you know, it's who, who too I've expensive, heard is, but it's really good. I've heard I've heard from a number of people that Lily's Bistro is very good. It's a, it's not no, which I would know. Oh, and Swiss page, Swiss pastry shop. Have you heard I have there? Not, I've not had theirs. I've, I've heard I, they have a burger too. Both places I wouldn't expect. Yeah, especially the modern though. Lily's, uh, Lily's to me, if this is controversial, uh, I know that it is, uh, their, their meat is over, um, over ground. And so it comes out spongy. And so I actually don't oh, like their burger interesting. and most people think that I'm insane. So, okay. See, um, I've never had it. So I have yeah, to be the judge. The gorgonzola, the taste is there. It's a texture mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, the fries, the gorgonzola fries at Lily's. Oh, yeah, one of my favorite dishes in all the city. Well, we finally got around to something lighthearted. Yeah, we did. Last question for the day. Uh, I'm going to uh, put you into a a fight to the death, barehanded. Mm -hmm. Uh, No weapons, no tools, just you and your opponent. You have to choose your opponent, and if you win, you will receive great fame and fortune. Okay. Which I know that you desire. And this is a fight to To the death. To the death. Yeah, so you have to choose your opponent. Would you choose uh, 100 horse, no, excuse me, 100 duck sized horses okay. or a single horse sized duck? Ooh, man. Um, what a fantastic question. Um, I am going to go, uh, uh, I'm going to go horse sized duck. Okay. Uh, I think that my brain doesn't deal well with lots of scattered things coming at me from every direction. Mm-hmm. I think I could get it together 
and mm-hmm. and face one horse-sized duck more than uh, <laughs> a, a hundred horse-sized ducks. Nice, yeah. nice. I think the breakdown on that, I have to tally it up as this goes by. It's about 50-50. Okay. Which is interesting. Yeah, okay. I think I'm with you, though, on the, maybe the, that's a good point about the 100. Yeah. That's a hundred different things. I mean, you I mean, can keep track of maybe five or ten, but a hundred. No, in Mortal Kombat, you got to be focused. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, I think that's a good spot to hit. There you go. Chris Taylor, thank you so much for coming in today. I'm totally. Really good. appreciate it. We'll do this again for sure. Sounds great. All right. Good stuff, as always, from my dear friend Chris. I hope that the discussion today causes you to think uh, and to prayerfully consider where God may be leading you and your family when it comes to education. There's a lot of really great options you can go to. And, you know, not everybody is called to private school or to public school or to homeschooling. The key, I think, as Chris said, is to make sure that in all things in your family, but especially with your education, Christ is preeminent. He is at the center. So again, thank you so much for tuning in to, to my discussion with Chris today. As always, if you have any feedback, I really want to hear from you. Please send me a message straight from the homepage at defiantdad.com. And uh, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. If you like the show, would you mind sharing it with a friend and maybe uh, leaving us a five-star rating as well? It's a really simple way to boost the visibility of the show so that more dads like you and I can hear the life-changing message of the gospel. Also, if you're on Instagram, I'd really be honored to have your follow. The name there is The Defiant Dad, all one word. That's The Defiant Dad. This is The Defiant Dad Podcast. My name is Andrew Sullivan, and I will catch you next Monday. Thank you so much for listening.